But um, if you weren't here with us uh, last week, my name is Paul, I'm one of the pastors here at the Phillips. And um, we are doing a series uh, with our friend Ken Lloyd, who has been doing all kinds of incredible um, ministry. Do you call it ministry? You're so not a church person that you don't use that word. And, and so I don't know what to call it. He's been loving people unconditionally for a long time here in Portland. Um, if you didn't get a chance to hear his story, are you going to do a little summary? Because I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah, yeah, you do a little summary for those who weren't here last week. Um, but he's going to be sharing a uh, four-part series with us called uh, May I Be You. And it was awesome to get to chat with him uh, in front of you guys last week, uh, just kind of as an introduction. But um, be the next two weeks, a week off, and then two more weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I don't really have any other announcements, so with that, we'll just uh, get into this. You guys, just to make it less awkward, let's welcome Ken and uh, make him something that I wrote 
20 years ago. And it kind of, we're talking about this today is wrongness day. It's about being wrong. And I, I'm, I'm such an expert at that that I write it down. Uh, and so I've written this down and I want you to, uh, I want to read this to you so you understand a little bit of who I am and how I operate. Over the weekend, I was at a conference in Seattle, mostly nuclearists, lots of master's degrees and doctorates and PhDs, global thinkers all, folks driven with huge plans to alleviate suffering, large complex uh, schemes to do simple church, and so on. Beautiful folks. I'll throw my lot in with them anything, anything. So what do you do, Ken? She was one of the plenary speakers and had a resume about a yard long. So long, in fact, that hers made Jesus look uh, a little bit like a slacker. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I play, uh, I hang out with street kids, mostly nothing special, a lot of the time. And mantra, my truly guiding principle, sounded flat and amateurish to my own words as the word uh, to my own ears as the word rolled irretrievably off my tongue. What an idiot was my silent assessment of me. I had nothing momentous to report, nothing game-changing. My resume seemed in that moment as if it would fit comfortably on the head of a pin next to the inscribed. I don't know if you are aware of those things, but when I was younger, when I was a kid, they would actually put the whole Lord's Prayer in the head of the And you had to look at it through a magnifying glass. And then you could buy it for like two dollars or something like that. It's pretty amazing. Misery, my old companion, showed up on key. Can't I be somebody else except me with my assessment of me? And then in that same week, what exactly do you do with those homeless people at this underground, said the potential donor? He's a good man, a local businessman, well-known in local church circles. I raised myself to my full five foot seven stature. Ooh, really tall, lanky, tall drink of water. Among other things, I spent all day Wednesday preparing the basement for my young friends. At about five o'clock, I hear the first of them come clomping down the stairs with their dogs in tow, or being towed by the dog. When I see the first smudged face, my heart begins to sing. It will continue a song of love all the while they are there. I believe they hear the song and find comfort and safety. How many salvations have you had in the last year, David Rugby? My boy, reprisal, was staunch in mid court. Do you help them get jobs, housing, education? Do you preach the gospel to them? Just what do you do anyway? Salvations, I, I don't know, we don't keep track. Some, some job help, some housing help, not much education, not much uh, preaching. Do you let our hearts sing over them? From the outside, it looks just like hanging out, nothing special. But they begin to dream, and when they dream, they begin to respond. Sing over them, huh? Well, not out loud. This isn't the way you want to go. So that was my week after having done this event. Uh, around the community church. Uh, today, this morning, 
once I got once I got the most of the cat hair off of my shoes, I came to uh, some town just up in Kelly because it's a place for me to relax and kind of get my hair a little bit screwed on right for the morning. And as I was as I, as I was sitting there, I was just watching the people. People are so beautiful, they're so fun to watch. I got to watch people as they were, you know, a coffee shop. It's not an interesting place, it's a coffee shop. It's a happy place. Meaning people have their coffee and they're happy. And they're going to get their coffee and they're happy. So I got to watch people. And then as as I left the uh, left the coffee shop, <clears throat> there was a gentleman standing on the sidewalk. And he had one of these. Street growth vendors are really wonderful people. I have stacks and stacks of street growth because for three dollars I can get half an hour of conversation with somebody who doesn't look like me for a while. It's really easy for an introvert because the for three dollars it's pretty much all makes it all easy. So I got to hang out with Norman. 35 years ago, he lost contact with his baby brother. And now today, at age 66, this Thanksgiving, he will be driving to Pocatello, Idaho to see his wife. So I got to hear his story. And just then, he stopped by. And I got to see you. And um, I just got to see your face and it made me happy. Uh, and then, just as I was getting ready to leave Norman, uh, there was a young couple that I'd known for maybe 12 years or so on the street. Uh, they have lived on the street all that time. She's probably, I'm guessing, could be as old as 30. Um, and we had a happy reunion in that moment. Uh, it was really fun. And then I came here. Uh, and I got to be with people. Now, I noticed that last week there were lots of people who hear me interview, uh, interview, and this week much less people. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. But I'll, I'll just leave it at that. So, what I want to do then, uh, since I forgot, uh, let's see. Continue just a minute. Technically, and that's a good technically that was good. That's a concept that I came up with many, many years ago. The concept is this. Western culture, when I talk about Western culture, Aristotle or Plato would be the fathers of Western culture. Uh, we're a conquering culture. We, uh, we're always in charge, largely in charge. And as a church, we have taken that on as well. So my friend Richard Twist, Native American, uh, who's not dead, um, he was told as a young Christian, Richard, you cut your hair and be like us, then you'll be pleasing to God. And he lived under that for many, many years. 
And so what, what I'm saying is, is we can stand Western culture on its head, on its head. As Christians, as lovers of people, we can stand Western culture on its head by saying, may I be you? Will you let me be you? Will you be the teacher and I'll be the student? Will you be the parent and I'll be the child? Will you be, will you be the one that understands things and I'll be the one that wants to know what you are? Can I walk with you? You don't have to walk with me. Can I walk with you? Can I be with you? I don't want to be like you. I want to be you. I want, I want to be one of you. Um, and so this, this uh, whole uh, series that I'm doing is called A Different Look at Difference. Uh, who could you be for someone else? It doesn't have to be me. I already have a community that accepts me in all of my weaknesses and all of my strengths. But who, do I, who could I be for somebody else who may not have that community? And the reason is because everybody deserves to be loved simply because they exist. Now imagine if not everybody deserves to be loved. Then we can build a hierarchy. We tend to do that. Uh, we tend to do that in our minds, in our thinking, in the way, in the way we behave towards people. Uh, and, and by that I mean the eligibility factor uh, in our own minds towards other people is fine. Certainly in my mind it's fine. I don't have a, a mind or a heart big enough to embrace the whole world. That's Jesus. But what I can do is I can I can I can offer eligibility to everybody that I encounter, everybody that I see, I can offer eligibility. Uh, I spent a good part of my life ineligible, and I understand how it feels. You get used to it, but you never get used to it. You're comfortable with it, but you're always uncomfortable. Uh, you smile, but you hurt on the inside. And that's been me all my life. So now that why not? Why not just look at every human being that I encounter and realize you deserve to be loved because you exist? Uh, it makes life a lot easier. The decisional issues are way, way smaller as a result of that. Oh, this is really funny. Not going to help you <laughs> what is it that we need to know about crossing cultural and or economic barriers so that we can land on the other side comfortably? So there's a picture of a trainer, just train cars just smashed every which direction. And the next picture is, this is going to the other side and hammocks, people, hammocks strung from trees, just relaxing. Who do I have to be? Um, I have to do. But first, what we need to do, I think, is I know who my parents are. I know who the people on this planet touch me the most deeply. Do you know who you have touched most deeply by? Um, so, what I would like to do, well, when somebody says, okay, now what I want you to do is get up and walk across the room with somebody that you don't really know. Uh, and we'll do 
divisive to me or three's maximum. How do you feel? Anxious? I feel terrible when somebody says that. So I'm going to ask you to do that. <laughs> Lighter. So the reason is, is because it turns out to be a learning experience for all of us because um, instead of me being the expert, there's a whole bunch of experts in this room. And, we, and your expertise is valuable for the rest of us. So, <laughs> I really hate to say this, but if you go across the room and find something you don't know so well, and awkwardly, awkwardly, awkwardly introduce yourself and ask a question, I'd be curious to know who it is that you notice the most when you're walking down the street? Who it is that touches your heart the most on this planet? And, and I'm talking corporate. I'm not talking uh, India or, uh, or, or islands of the sea or anything like that. I'm talking about people that you could actually encounter in the next day or two. People that you encounter last week. Who, who's stuck in your brain? Who made you? Who made you think, gee, I'm curious about that person, and I really like to know that person. Um, so let's get up and do the unthinkable. <laughs> <laughs>
You notice that everybody that spoke talked about an encounter, talked about somebody that they saw met, they interacted with. Um, you know, the concept of it in the old days was uh, either God, don't send me to Africa, or God save me. So God sent me to Africa. And actually, Portland, Oregon is a pretty cool place, and there's lots of interesting people in the city. The ones that interest me are create a natural um, way of connecting. Uh, and so uh, baristas, um, if I was rich, I would bring all of my coffee in a different coffee shop. Um, but then I would return it to the different coffee shops. I have, a, I have on my cell phone, I have very little information on it, but I have information on baristas all over the city. The reason is, is when you ask a barista their name, they are so flattered. There's a, a young woman at a coffee shop, she was the last one that I didn't know the name of. <clears throat> but she was one of, one of these people, she's very beautiful, and also she could carry a whole bunch of dishes with food on them up a stair, a long stairway, and take two stairs at a time. Now, when I walk up that same stairway, I've got coffee down the front of my shirt, I've got coffee all over the stairs, I have to go back downstairs and say I spilled my coffee again, and so on like that. So I thought, she was way too cool for a guy like me. And finally, I got up the courage and I said, you know, I've seen you here lots and lots of times. Uh, my name is Ken, I don't know your name. And her whole countenance exploded into joy. If somebody would ask her her name. So they're really cool when you sometimes um, need to be cared for. So we have an opportunity here in Portland, and that's, uh, or wherever you live. Um, but today, uh, I want to talk about, let's see, I've got about 10 minutes left, so I'll move very, very quickly. Uh, the concept is being wrong and loving it. Um, which sounds like an oxymoron. It is impossible to be wrong and love it, but it's not. <clears throat> what does it feel like to be wrong? Just one, uh, one word. What does it feel like? Pardon? Stay. Stay. Pardon? Just not wrong. Not wrong. <laughs> no, yeah. Okay. Embarrassing. 
feels like, but that's not. Uh, let me ask uh, a different question. What does it feel like when, before you know you're wrong, um, and but yet you are wrong? What does it feel like? Catherine um, Schultz says it feels like being right. So, so we go through life assuming that we're right about everything. Uh, in other words, what are you wrong about today? What are you? And the answer is, well, I'm not wrong about anything. Um, because if I was wrong about something, then I would change it. Um, a lot of us feel as if we were, go through life as if we were Einstein. Brilliant. That, that our view of, of, of reality it's exactly the same as reality. Particularly if we're an expert in something, or if we're religious, uh, or if we have a strong personality. Uh, some people, I mean, we're the term know it all, and you're not know it all. Maybe you are a know it At times I am a know I'm assuming that my view of reality is reality. But in actual fact, it's probably not at all. I took a master's degree uh, a few years ago. Uh, after a 42-year absence from academia, uh, and all of my professors were Native American. Boy, let me tell you, at one point, a Native American woman who was in my class said, "Ken, you are so linear, I cannot even understand what you're saying." Wow, I really got some change. And so for the next three years, I was turned upside down and inside out by people who are arguably in my own mind superior to myself in the fashion that they live, in the way they thought, and the kindness that they expressed to the world. Uh, it was uh, one of the big thrills of my life. And all I uh, owe is $59,000. So totally cheap. <laughs> How many of you know the name Robert McNamara? He was one of the great architects of the brilliant war called the Vietnam War. And he was the architect of something that created 58,000 American deaths and multiplied millions of folks in Cambodia, Laos, Laos, uh, and Vietnam. Um, but the whole time, he had the feeling that he was doing right. But the feeling of doing right, I had the feeling of doing right a whole lot, only to discover that it's wrong. Completely wrong. I'm becoming an expert in being wrong. Not fun at all. Um, cognitive dissonance is something really difficult to handle. For example, uh, I'm a good guy. Uh, I'm a kind person. And then when I do something that somebody perceives as unkind and tells me I am completely blown away. I'm upset, I'm embarrassed. Uh, so what do I do? Uh, I, one of my options is to say, I am so sorry, I was wrong. But more likely what I will do is go get away from that person as quickly as possible. Uh, I will explain to them how I was right uh, anyway, 
That's called mansplaining. And I certainly conversant with that uh, with that way of behaving. Um, the thing is, is that we always want to, when we find a book where we'll, we want to quickly erase that from our being and get back to a sense of normalcy again towards ourselves. I can't go around this planet saying I am wrong all the time. I'm stupid. I, I, I can't seem to get anything right. Uh, if I do that, which often I do, uh, it's, it's harmful. So what I want to do then is I want to explain to myself either that I wasn't wrong, that I was almost right, but there are so many other ways of explaining to myself why it wasn't as bad as it was. Uh, rather than just go through it, feel the pain, apologize, and move on. Um, I wish you could see this picture. There is a, a wreck uh, of a, what, um, a milk tanker. So probably I'm thinking 20, 30,000 gallons spilled on the highway. And then there's another picture of a, a glass of milk tipped over. And we have a way of thinking about things called double loop or single loop. Single loop is, oh, the truck fell over, uh, or the glass fell over. Double loop is, why did that truck fall over? How can we look at this in a different way, in a systemic way, so that we can make sure that this truck doesn't happen again. Now, what we've done with trucks like that is we go into a huge, long uh, operations to find out what the problem is and how we can fix it. But think about human history. It's the beginning of human history until today. How many billions of gallons of milk have been, have been spilled by children? And finally, in 1981, somebody figured out uh, how to deal with it, because they were doing double learning. In other words, this is a systemic problem. Everywhere I go, and all of my kids spill their milk all the time, and they love to sit on the edge of the table. Yeah, if you have kids, you know that for some reason, they want to have almost half the glass on the edge, or, or more than half on the edge, so they don't fall. Um, but the, the fact is, is that, uh, I think we got Solve the problem. 
actually flee faith. Um, they, they were known as cities that people from where where I grew up, the kind of heart of the country, the Midwest, um, where people that didn't feel like they fit there, they fled to the coast to these uh, cities, and um, it's those people that that I I wanted to like, that I wanted to, and I still want to, and and, and I, I don't pretend that um, we as the Groves have figured this out or dialed it, but it is our heart. It is our heart that we are a place that um, people who have either left faith but still want some sort of connection can be and they can build friendship. And um, I love that what you're talking about is what's essential to that. I love that it's, um, it is so reflective of what Jesus did, what God did in Jesus, right? I mean, um, and I love that Ken's not churching in his language, but he's preaching that sermon. He's preaching the idea of Emmanuel, of God with us, of it, you know John chapter one, where it says that the, the John intentionally puts the word flesh and, and 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 logos next to each other to go. This is how close God became uh, flesh. He put on flesh. He became one of us. Um, and if God can feel discomfort, which I don't know that that's a sound thing, but if He could. How much more uncomfortable is that when he said, may I be you? May I set my tent up among you? That's the language there, is that God came to set up his tent among us. And so I'm hearing all of these incredible sermons <laughs> throughout your talk, so thank you, and I hope you guys uh, come and, and uh, hear Ken as he continues. And we will do our best to make sure you Because I, I got to sit through these sessions before, and his, his slides are wonderful. They really are like half of his talk, <laughs> we, we uh, really uh, hamstrung this morning. So uh, I apologize for that, but we'll make sure that we have uh, that going next week. But as it's uh, kind of our ritual and our liturgy here at the Groves, we just take one song word to um, kind of reflect and respond, and you can just pray, or you can journal, or you can uh, step in the back, there's some crackers and juice, you can uh, take communion, and then we'll uh, read a scripture together, and that'll be our initial. Thank you.